Great to see you. Each one of you, let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. I want to thank the ladies who were responsible for uh, decorating in here. I neglected to say that last week, but thank you to Vicki and Kathy Dabbs and Shannon for working in here, and also for Kate and what she did in the fellowship hall. Thank you, ladies, for your work here at the church. Luke chapter 2. All right, so let's be careful now. One of the most well-known passages in all of the Bible is before us. And if you've read it once, you've read it a hundred times. You've heard it in children's uh, Christmas plays. So let's be extremely cautious as we look at these seven verses. It's the living and active Word of God, and we want to be careful not to read it with a nonchalance and uh, assumption that we know everything that's going on about these verses. This is true for me as well as you. I perhaps have heard this passage read more often than you have. So let's be really careful as we approach these verses today. And let's, by God's grace, hear the word of the Lord from Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. The word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The inerrant and authoritative inspired word of God. May he bless what we've read and let's pause and ask for help. Christ Jesus, in this very familiar passage that we look to every year, we pray for help today. I pray that your spirit would give us fresh eyes. We pray that you would remove the attitude of I've read this before. I know what it says. There's nothing here for me. Your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged blade. And this is true of these seven verses. Regardless of how many times we've read them, speak freshly through these words. Father, let our eyes see them anew. Help us, please, help me to speak and think and preach clearly and as your body, as your congregation, Christ Jesus, 
press the truth of this passage into our hearts as we hear it this morning. And Christ Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Divine providence is the idea that God governs and controls everything that takes place in his creation. I don't know if you're a fan of divine providence or not. I don't know if you believe in divine providence or not. But it is uh, the idea that God governs and controls everything that takes place in his creation. Someone anonymous summed it up this way. It is the hand behind the headlines. That's a good way to put it. Uh, R.C. Sproul has a book entitled The Invisible Hand. That's another way to put it. These are very brief definitions, sound bites even. I, I like this. This is a little more filled in. It's from a Puritan pastor named Thomas Watson, and he defined divine providence this way. There are three things uh, in providence. God's foreknowing, God's determining and God's directing all things to their periods, that's periods of time, uh, eras in history, to their periods and events. This is a very good definition. And I want you to, if you're not already jotting it down, maybe you, maybe you should. There are three things in providence. God's foreknowing, God's determining, and God's directing all things to their periods and events. And the most important two words are all things. It's quite a mouthful. Quite a mouthful. There's a good example of this in history uh, of his providence uh, from the war between England and Spain. So this is quite a long time ago, of course. King Philip II of Spain, a Roman Catholic, wanted to eradicate Protestant Christianity from England. And he readied his navy, depicted before you here, the largest and strongest on earth, to invade England. He was trusting God, he said, to send him favorable weather as he would be fighting, in his mind, a divine cause. So on May 30th, 1588, Philip fell to his knees before his invincible armada, prayed for victory, and watched it disappear over the horizon. But providence sided with the English. The Spanish Armada was quickly hurled in every direction by a violent storm. The beleaguered fleet regrouped, pressed on, and was seen uh, spotted by the British on July 19th. Winds turned against the Armada, slowing its progress. When the battle was finally joined on July 21st, weather again aided the English. Heavy winds favored their smaller and more agile and manageable ships. The English outmaneuvered the Spanish, and at just the right moments, the weather shifted always in England's favor. By July 31st, 
a Spanish official, the Duke of Parma, had informed King Philip of likely defeat. God knows how grieved I am at this news at a time when I hope to send your majesty congratulations. I will only say that this must come from the hand of the Lord, who knows well what he does. Through the hand of providence, uh, the English defeated the Spanish Armada consisting of 130 ships carrying 2,500 guns, 8,000 seamen, and almost 20,000 soldiers. The hand of providence. Now, it may be that as we read these seven verses, uh, you uh, had to stifle a yawn. Uh, as I mentioned, this is one of the f- most familiar texts, texts in the Bible. And you've heard this, read this dozens of times. It is dangerously familiar. And we come to these verses with indifference at times. But I want to suggest to you this morning, I want to propose that the setting of Christ's birth is unimaginably complex. Uh, Much like the Spanish Armada being defeated by England through the hand at work behind the headlines, we see in these seven verses God's foreknowing, God's determining, and God's directing all things to their periods and events. The setting of Christ's birth is unimaginably complex. And we see this unimaginable complexity through three aspects of our passage today. Three aspects in the setting of Christ's birth. The first aspect is the political setting. Uh, Luke begins his description of Christ's birth by describing the world's political climate. Let me point out three things to you about the political setting uh, taking place in these verses. To begin with, Luke describes the emperor. Luke names the person ruling the Roman Empire and the known world at that time. Look at verse 1 with me. In those days. Now, these three words take us back even further. They take us back to the previous chapter uh, and set these verses in its local historical setting because way back at the beginning of chapter 1, verse 5, Luke began this account by saying, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And as you might know, Herod was a brutal king. Herod was a vicious and violent ruler uh, who would stop at nothing to keep his kingdom secure. Uh, Matthew's birth account uh, brings out some of those details of Herod's brutality. In those days, points us to the local political setting of Christ's birth, Jesus was born during the brutal reign of King Herod. But now Luke goes on to give us the worldwide political setting as verse 1 continues. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus 
the ruler of the Roman Empire and the ruler of the known world when Christ was born was a man named Caesar Augustus or Octavian, if you prefer. Octavian's granduncle, that is the brother of his grandfather, was none other than Julius Caesar. Uh, Julius was very fond of his grandnephew Octavian, showered him with gifts. Julius was murdered in 44 BC, and Octavian discovered that his granduncle had named him a son and heir in his will, and also chose him to be his successor, ruling uh, the Roman Empire. And so Octavian came to power over what was then the Roman Republic. Uh, it was a political system torn apart by intrigue and power struggles. And so Octavian ruthlessly eliminated his adversary, adversaries and established himself as the first absolute ruler of the Roman Empire. Generally well thought of as an emperor, didn't possess the madness of many later Roman emperors, He's responsible for a period of great prosperity and peace in the, in the empire, the legendary Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And he was given the title Augustus by the Senate in 27 BC, which uh, meant majestic, sublime, highly favored. Many believe that Caesar Augustus or Octavian uh, was the long-awaited Messiah and had arrived bringing peace and happiness to mankind. Uh, one source uh, said that by the time Augustus died, the Roman Empire covered over 3 million square miles. That's more than the mainland of the United States with a population between 70 and 100 million. So he was... Uh, many thought a brilliant and insightful man, Augustus, was responsible, humanly speaking, for creating the empire that allowed the gospel to spread across the ancient world. This is how Luke starts, dropping us into the worldwide political setting uh, of, of, of uh, Jesus' birth. Uh, uh, it's ruled by a, a brilliant and extremely powerful man named Caesar Augustus. Uh, from the emperor, he goes on to describe an edict. Uh, uh, Luke describes the imperial edict, one of them at least, issued by Caesar Augustus. Again, verse 1 says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Uh, an, a, an edict, a, a proclamation, a law, this was binding on every subject of the Roman Empire, which I've referred to as the known world. This edict covered a lot of people. Look how verse 1 uh, goes on. That all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. One notable feature of Augustus' reign was that he reformed the way taxes were collected. He established a census or registration, as it's referred to here, that it was taken every 14 years. It was designed primarily to register men for military service. Jews were exempted from this. 
but it also numbered each nation by family and tribe. And, and this was used for imposing taxes. Recall that the Jews hated the occupation of their lands by uh, unclean Gentiles, the Roman, uh, the Roman armies. But what they hated, hated even more than Roman occupation was Roman taxation. That's why men like Zacchaeus and Matthew were despised by their fellow Jews, why they were considered traitors, because they collected taxes for, for the man, for Rome. So this decree that Luke refers to is a very uh, sweeping and broad decree, probably issued in, in about 8 BC. Luke goes on to describe the edict uh, issued by Caesar Augustus to register. And then Luke goes further, thirdly, and tells us the length that this, uh, the, the breadth, the far-reaching effects of this edict. He tells us the extent of this imperial decree. Look at verse 3 with me. And notice, all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, many perhaps didn't need to travel, but many did. And you could see how a decree like this would set many regions in complete turmoil with people traveling everywhere. It's had the effect, perhaps, of setting the entire region in motion. Uh, people traveling all over the place. It's like the day before Thanksgiving or traveling the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Uh, people uh, everywhere. But in particular, in particular, this imperial edict has set one specific couple in motion. And we see this in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee. God is using a godless Roman emperor and a worldwide decree to register for, for taxation to accomplish his purpose in the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, God works through the decree of Caesar Augustus to move a couple exactly where they need to be so that the Messiah would be born exactly where he needed to be born and exactly at the time he needed to be born. We shouldn't be surprised when we read things like this. God always works this way, using earthly kings to accomplish the will of the king of kings. Consider this verse from Proverbs uh, 21 that we often quote. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It doesn't say that the king's heart is a rod of iron does not say that the king's heart is like titanium. The king's heart isn't hard to turn. The king's heart is like water in the hand of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you when you were growing up, but I can remember, do you ever, ever play with the garden hose outside in the yard? And, you know, I think my mom was asking me to water her tomato plants during the summer. And you know what a great job kids do of watering 
plants in the yard, you know, and you've got the hose and stick, you're sticking your thumb over the end of the hose to see all the different ways you can get the water to squirt out and how much pressure is necessary to make a really hard stream and, you know, because nobody just wants to hold a hose over the tomato plants. Uh, and you can kink the hose and you can get it to go in different directions. You can wave the hose and the water will go like that in the air and it's child's play. That's how hard it is for God to direct the heart of the king. It's child's play. Think how many times we see God doing this very thing in his word. We can think of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. We can think of the heart of the king in uh, the book of Daniel. God working through King Nebuchadnezzar and others. We see it clearly in the book of Ezra. Uh, for example, Ezra begins like this in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Think of the water hose just going like this so that a, he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Uh, Cyrus became the most powerful man in the world. And Isaiah is very descriptive of, of this very process of God stirring up the heart. Listen to how the Lord describes it through uh, the prophet Isaiah. This is in Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you, Cyrus, the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things." And this is the same thing we see here in Luke chapter 2. Just as God so easily moved the heart of Cyrus to issue this decree and, and topple kingdoms before him, so God moves in the heart of the most powerful man in the world, though he does not know him, Caesar Augustus, to accomplish his sovereign purpose in history in the life of one couple, Joseph and Mary, and in the life and ministry of his anointed Messiah. It's pretty amazing. 
the setting of Christ's birth unimaginably complex. And the first aspect that demonstrates the complexity uh, is the political setting. And we see the emperor, the edict, and the extent of that edict. Well, there's another aspect of this setting uh, that I want to point out. And that is, secondly, uh, the prophetic setting. Uh, the second aspect that demonstrates the complexity of Christ's birth is the prophetic setting. I want to mention three things here as well. Uh, first, this involves a location. Uh, verse 4, again, in your Bible. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. If Joseph and Mary uh, had gone around the country of Samaria, okay, let me back up and, all right, uh, I can't see the bottom because of the greenery, but that's all right because you're not looking at that screen. I just realized you're looking up here. So anyway, here's Samaria. Here's Samaria, and you recall the woman at the well uh, and how it was odd for Jesus to travel through Samaria. Most Jews, if they traveled from up uh, in Galilee down to Jerusalem, they would go around uh, Samaria and they would cross the Jordan River and come back probably in the region of Jericho. If they took that route, it was a trip of about 90 miles, a difficult journey through mountainous terrain, and would have taken them about three days. Verse 4 also says that Joseph went up from Nazareth. Uh, Bethlehem is just four and a half miles south of Jerusalem. It's not on this map, but it would be down uh, about here, perhaps. It says he went up. You and I would say, well, he went down uh, because he went down on the map. But it says he went up because it means he went up in the terrain. Uh, here's Nazareth over here, and of course they would have come down over here and then come back up on this side. You can see it, you know, it's not very um, conducive uh, to foot traffic. Uh, we know from God's word, they're on their way uh, to Bethlehem, it says, uh, and we know from God's word that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. It was announced by the prophet Micah. We read this prophecy just moments ago in our scripture reading, and recall verse 2 of Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which is another region near Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days." This was not um, unknown to Israelites. They knew uh, about this prophecy. Uh, after King Herod was visited by the wise men in Matthew's account, he assembles the, the chief priests and the scribes and asks them where the king of the Jews would be born. And assembling together, they say, and, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. 
Uh, Micah's prophecy was known to them. They knew where he would be born. And further, during his public ministry, uh, debating whether Jesus was really the Messiah, the book of John says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? This was not hidden, this prophecy that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And it was probably not hidden to Joseph and Mary either. They might have been wondering how he would be born in Bethlehem ensconced as they were in the daily life of Nazareth. And then along comes a decree by Caesar Augustus setting the whole world in motion and setting them in motion to fulfill the promise and prophecy of God's word, the prophecy about Messiah's birthplace. And so first in this prophetic setting, there is a location involved. Secondly here, there is also a lineage involved. Uh, not only a location, there is a lineage that is vital to this fulfillment. And look at verse 4 again down towards the second half. Um, From the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he, Joseph, was of the house and lineage of David. Apparently, the decree of Caesar Augustus required people to register in the hometown of their ancestor. Up in verse 3, it says, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. That refers to the town where their tribal ancestor came from, uh, where where, uh, they originated. And Joseph and Mary had to travel to Judea to register in their ancestral home, which was Bethlehem, because they were both descendants of David. This is significant because, again, you know this. God's word tells us that not only would the Messiah be born in Bethlehem, but he would be a descendant of King David. Uh, this is promised to David. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verses 14 and following, here's 2 Samuel 7, 16, this promise God makes to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We're uh, fond of reading Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And that prophecy also states that this son would reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. We go on in in, uh, um, Revelation and hear Jeremiah talk about it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. And the book of Matthew begins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel announced to Mary that her child would uh, 
inherit the throne of his father David. So Bethlehem is important, the location, but then there's this lineage as well, uh, a huge factor in the prophetic setting that they are both from the line of David. We see this playing into the prophetic setting uh, also. But then there's a third thing that I want you to see about the prophetic setting, and that is a law. This goes back to the edict that uh, Caesar Augustus uh, issued. Uh, and look at the end of uh, verse 4, and let's continue reading into verse 5. Uh, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now we need to stop, and this is an important phrase here, these these two sentences. Many have wondered and why Joseph didn't just travel to Bethlehem by himself. I mean, what man in his right mind would take a pregnant woman on a journey like this, walking 90 miles uh, through mountainous terrain uh, for three days? Again, it would be uh, uh, traveling up in elevation. The whole way, Mary would have been very close to delivering. Uh, maybe in the ninth month of her pregnancy, what could Joseph have been thinking? What would compel him to take this very pregnant woman on a journey like this? Well, there are several uh, explanations. Um, to begin with, he might have not wanted to be absent when his first child was born. How, 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 how much more so when your wife is pregnant with the Holy One of God? Who would want to be absent when Emmanuel was born? It's also possible that he took her with him for her own protection. Think of if he had to be convinced by Gabriel that Mary had not been unfaithful. How much more difficult for those in the town of Nazareth to believe that she had not been unfaithful. He, he, he may have wanted to protect her from accusations and wouldn't have dreamt of leaving her alone in Nazareth. Ultimately, the reason they probably both made the journey, it seems there is urgency to this. And scholars have concluded that there was a deadline approaching that made both of their trips necessary. Uh, it's like the deadline we're facing now, the number of shopping days left till Christmas, or the deadline of April 15th. Bible scholars are thinking that this decree from Caesar Augustus made in 8 BC, that was two years before this, was now being enforced. See, Herod had asked for extra time. Jews hated taxation, and he wanted extra time for Rome to break the idea to them and introduce this slowly. That was two years ago. Augustus has waited long enough. He's tolerated noncompliance for as long as he can, and now he wants Quirinius forced them to carry out the edicts so Rome could get the income that they needed. There's some kind of deadline, some urgency that compels them, and, and they have no choice. 
what brings this setting to its fulfillment and what brings the location of Bethlehem and the lineage of David together is a law from the Roman government and a deadline that local officials had to fulfill. There's no choice. Mary, we have to go. So the setting of Christ's birth it's unimaginably complex. And the second feature that shows us the complexity is the prophetic setting. This location and lineage and, and law whose deadline was fast approaching. Otherwise, why travel at nine months pregnant? Well, there's a third thing, a third aspect of the setting, and that is the personal setting. The personal details involved in the birth of Jesus Christ. And there are two things I want to point out to you about the personal setting. The first is the timing of Christ's birth. He was born at not an unfortunate moment in history. He was born at the most opportune moment in history. Verse 6 says... And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Look at those words, the time came. It's so nonchalant, Luke just kind of slides them in. But they're, they're so significant. They're so important. They're, they're charged with meaning. Not only is the political setting involved, a decree from the most powerful man in the world being enforced two years after it was issued. Not only is the prophetic setting involved, the, the location, Bethlehem, and the lineage of David, this fulfilling hundreds of years of prophecy, there is this also, the personal setting. The exact timing of Mary's pregnancy comes to an end right here. This becomes her due date. Galatians 4 says it like this, But when the fullness of time had come, God had sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. There are other historical factors we could talk about that reveal what an opportune moment this is. The perfect dot in history. The, the languages of the world, because of Alexander the Great, uh, the, the world basically spoke Hellenistic Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, which is how the gospel spread. There are so many cogs in this machine, and it is mind-boggling, but this pregnancy comes to its termination not by accident, but because while they're in Bethlehem, it has to be in Bethlehem because they're of David's line, she becomes due here. And all these settings, initiated before the foundation of the world and the mind of God, announced by prophets in the Old Testament centuries before, 
set into motion by the decree of a Roman Empire two years before this, initiated by God the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary nine months previously. They reach, they all reach their fulfillment in the words, the time came. It is orchestration beyond our imaginations. It is staggeringly complex. You and I manage time so poorly. We can't orchestrate time to save our lives. There is a friend, uh, there was a man named George, and he struggled like many men do to remember his anniversary date. It was March 7th. Struggled with this year after year, much to his wife's chagrin. And one year they were traveling, this couple, on route to Australia. At five minutes before midnight, George proudly looked over at his wife and said, This year I remembered just five minutes. And at that moment, the captain's voice came over the intercom. We've just crossed the international date line. It's now March 8th. There's no such imprecision with God's timetable. The time came. The exact moment of her pregnancy, the exact moment of their trip, the exact moment of history, the time came and Christ was born. In addition to the timing of his birth, I want you to see secondly about this personal setting, the abject humility of his birth. The incredibly humble circumstances in which Christ was born. Look with me at verse 7. Uh, verse 7 says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son. It's worth noting uh, the, first, uh, the word firstborn. And the Bible is clear to point out in Luke that Mary conceived Jesus as a virgin. God's word is also clear to point out both in Matthew and again here that Mary delivered Christ as a virgin. That's why uh, up in verse 5 it says uh, to be registered with Mary his betrothed. While while Matthew tells us that they had in fact become married, the word betrothed used by Luke here indicates that they had not consummated their marriage. And that's why they're still operating uh, under the rules of betrothal here. After Christ's birth, however, Joseph and Mary had relations just like any other married couple. Mary was not a perpetual virgin as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. In fact, all of the Gospels tells us that Jesus had half-brothers, not children of Joseph from a previous marriage, but children of Mary. Matthew 13 even gives us their names and mentions that Jesus also had sisters. 
And verse 7 continues, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. These were not unique to Jesus. Any child born in this era would have been wrapped in swaddling cloths. They were simply strips of cloth wrapped around the baby to protect it. It was believed that these strips of of cloth would strengthen the baby's back and his other bones and help it to grow properly. You could also tell how rich or poor a baby's parents were by the type of material and the color of the swaddling cloths. And note that Mary does this by herself. We're not told of a midwife present to swaddle Jesus, no no mother certainly to help her through her first delivery. All that Mary has to comfort her Humanly speaking, is her 15 or 16 year old husband. And guys, think of what a Nimrod you were at 16 years old. Verse 7 goes on. And laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is not an inn like you and I would think of. It's very unlikely that a tiny little hamlet like Bethlehem would have a commercial inn. And the word that Luke uses, there's a, there's a lot of debate about what this is. Uh, probably some kind of temporary public shelter. Uh, It might be an upper room. Uh, We just don't know. What we do know is that there was, it was not an inn as we think of it, and therefore probably no innkeeper. As the next passage tells us, there were men uh, shepherding flocks nearby. That's an indication that this is probably not winter, but closer to Passover. Sheep were pastured near Jerusalem uh, as the time drew near to Passover to provide sacrifices for Jerusalem. Jerusalem's only four and a half miles away. And the population in this region uh, around Passover would swell with pilgrims. So you've got two factors. You've got uh, Passover, if that's the case, with pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem. You've got the Roman officials who, who are enforcing this edict uh, to register for taxation. And so the world was just a swarm of people. And because of the influx of people around Passover, Roman officials frequently built public shelters to house the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem. These were busy and noisy and without innkeepers. And so apparently during this very hectic time, Mary and Joseph find this Roman shelter full of pilgrims for Passover and may have stayed outside somewhere where their animals were kept because Jesus is laid in a feeding trough for animals. It might have been a cave. An early tradition claims that Jesus was born in a cave, but wherever it was, it was a place where animals uh, were kept. It was comfortless. 
it was profoundly humble. It was not the pristine and sterile hospital room that many of us have experienced with the antiseptic soap that smell lingers on your hands for days. This place stank. Christ was born amid the stench of animal droppings and the smoke of wood fires and the stale air of a shepherd's cave, perhaps. It was profoundly humble. But what smelled worse, far worse than the odor of the cave was the odor of our sin. The stench of our guilt that Jesus came to bear on the cross. And the smell inside the cave was nothing compared to that. 2 Corinthians 8 9 tells us of the humility of Christ's birth. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Philip Yancey compares this humble birth to many of the visits to the United States conducted by royalty. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, for example, Queen Elizabeth II visited the United States and reporters went to lengths to describe uh, the logistics of her visit to the United States. Her 4,000 pounds of luggage that included two outfits for every occasion. A morning outfit in case someone died. 40 pints of plasma and white kid leather toilet seat covers. She brought along her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants. A, a brief visit of royalty to a foreign country can easily cost $20 million. And in contrast, we have Christ's visit to earth that took place in an animal shelter with no attendants and nowhere to lay the newborn king but a feeding trough. This is humility. This is humility. So we see this incredible personal setting uh, that reveals the complexity of Christ's birth. The timing of it and then the, the abject humility of it. This is a complex setting. It's not seven verses that form just an apostrophe in history. They reveal the hand of providence at work, bringing together uh, all that was necessary for the birth of Jesus the Messiah. And this unimaginable un uh, complexity 
we've seen through uh, first the political setting uh, with Caesar's edict uh, and the extent of that edict. We see it in the prophetic setting, the announcement of Bethlehem as the birthplace and uh, as well as the lineage of David. And finally, we see this personal setting and all of it comes together to, to reveal the jaw-dropping intricacy of God's providence in the birth of Christ. In 1937, Walt Disney Studios released the first full-length animated movie, which was Snowed White and the Seven Dwarfs. Um, it was producing animation in 1937 was a gargantuan task. Uh, Disney artists drew over one million pictures with each picture flashing onto the screen for a mere one twenty-fourth of a second. As you watch the movie run at regular speed, it seems so simple and we have no clue what went into it. And, and the setting of Christ's birth is like this, this unimaginable complexity with infinite thought and skill and careful uh, attention in every detail. And if the hand behind the headlines was at work in the birth of our Savior, do you suppose that his hand might be at work in your life too? As our lives run at regular speed, we have no idea how much God's providence fills every single frame with the same infinite wisdom and skill and attention to detail. And what we conclude is that this God can be trusted. This God can be trusted. Lord, press this truth into our hearts. Your invisible hand of providence at work behind every moment of our lives. We praise you for your wisdom. Who has been your counselor? Who can tell you what to do? If there was a better plan for our lives, you would have done it. We praise you for how your sovereign hand and providence are revealed in the setting of Christ's birth. Help us, Savior, to trust the same hand of providence to work in our own lives today. Savior, we ask in your name. Amen. As we conclude today,
I encourage you to pull out the elements for the Lord's Supper. They're on the table in the very back, by the back door. And Pastor Brian has also left another uh, bowl of these elements up here at the very front. Lord willing, uh, this will be the last time we use our, our COVID elements. If you're out back there, there's more up here. Let me read this portion from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 26, 26, that describes the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Word of God says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. If you know Christ as your Savior and Lord this morning, I invite you to peel back the foil from the portion covering the bread and take the bread with us Christ's body broken for you Matthew continues, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take the cup together this morning. Christ's blood shed for you. And Savior, we give you thanks today for your great sacrifice we thank you for perishing as our substitute on the cross, for bearing the curse of the law in our place, for dying our death. Thank you, Father, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Savior, we praise you and thank you for your, your payment. Amen. Amen.